file. Oftentimes, we love discussing the Oscars and saying, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that did? You know, Ordinary People of a Raging Bull, Dances with Wolves and for Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction losing a Forrest Gump. Oh, my goodness. Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Bruckheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic cinema? No, I make movies for audiences, for popular culture. Same person who likes my dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. They're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. Is there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys? Cinephile. I think yeah, there's just more uh, suit and heavy. The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor? It'd be the Prince of Pain. I was about five hours old, and I was being put down by my family. Cinephile. Does Adnan Virk look like the undercover CIA agent who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman, smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, Welcome to Tangier. Cinephile, the Adnan Virk movie podcast. It is great to be back with all of you here on Cinephile. So much to get through on today's episode, the second of the new year. But seriously, Happy New Year to all of you, and thanks to Ben Lyons, who was so great on the previous episode. One of the movies we'll be discussing, Reynolds is the perfect role for Day-Lewis, who is likewise famous both for his obsessive, obsessive meticulousness and for the lengthy sabbaticals he has used to recharge between films. That is Christopher Orr, The Atlantic. He's talking about Phantom Thread, which unfortunately right now is still in limited release. It's going to be wide release by January 19th. I'll tell you all my story about that and the adventure, of course, because every year I have to get a little bit silly to go see these movies that I have to go see. But welcome back to everybody. Thanks so much for Cinephile. Thanks to everybody who's subscribing. My brother asked me if that actually is true, what Priscilla suggested. I don't know, but keep doing it. Subscribe, unsubscribe, then resubscribe, and tell all your friends and family to do so as well. You don't have to listen. It's fine. We just need the subscriptions. And then post reviews on iTunes. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. You put it at a five stars. Dan is laughing at my saying you don't have to listen. Seriously, just go ahead. Tell your grandmother to subscribe. You never have to listen. They discount the subscriptions. That's all that we care about. Happy New Year to you, Dan. How was the holidays in Q's? Pretty good. I feel like you're burying the lead already, though. As you heard in the open, as it's been in every open since it happened, I believe, Moonlight won Best Picture. You're going back to the Oscars. I don't know how you didn't lead with that. Well, I didn't think we had the music queued up. Last year, we played Celebration when it happened. We blew up the The music is officially not queued up, but (laughs) we can still clap or something. I don't know. Crazy. I'm at the National Championship a couple hours before Alabama. Uh, it takes on Georgia in an epic game. And then I got the email from 530 around, uh, from our friend Megan at Disney. Hey, we'd love to have you back hosting the Oscars on Oscar.com. I'm like, I'm in. Cause people were starting to ask me, but it's, uh, Dan knows full well. I didn't get the call last year until mid February, which was probably like a couple weeks before the ceremony. This year, the Oscars are March 4th. So indeed, I'm going back. Me and Lion's going to kill it. So Dan's right. I did bury the lead, but I can't wait to go back. Hotel access again. Well, that's for me? The, what do you think? I swear to God, I'll, I'll show you the email. Lions emails. He called me. I couldn't pick up because I was busy with the customer stuff. And the Lions, his email says, we've got to figure out a way to get Stanzik better than hotel access. I'm counting on you guys. Well, I'm <laughs> counting on Ben because I know he, he has all the juice. <laughs> he does have all the juice. And speaking of juice, we're going to Sundance. I don't know how Lions has convinced our bosses to do this, but they're paying for my flight. I think I'm going southwest, like middle seat. That's fine. Whatever. I'm going to get there. Hang out in Park City, Utah. Dude, Southwest, you pick your own seat as soon as you get on the plane. I'll be, I'll be you just got to check seven. in. It's very simple. No, I'll be Zone 7, the last one on there. I'm like, does that guy do cinephile? I'm like, yeah. You're going to Sundance? Yes, I am. You're going to go skiing with Redford? We hope so. 
Uh, but we're going next week. So I'll be there for the opening three days of the festival, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm amazed our bosses have consented to this and are paying for our hotel and lodging. Although, as I asked them, what exactly are you expecting back? If, if Ben and I just go, we watch like 10 movies in three days. Is that sufficient bang for the buck? And they're like, no, we need you to get interviews. So these are the people we're working on. Fingers crossed. Giamatti's going to be there. John Hamm's going to be there. Ben's already booked an interview with Nick Offerman. Ethan Hawke is going to be there. Ethan Hawke's in a movie that he produced, starred, directed in. Hey, Redford wants to come on Cinephile. We're just happy to see him walking around. Great. So, but I want to, I got to tell you guys, I've been just bombarded by these emails because all these Sundance films, of course, they want us all to go to the movies and get hard tickets. What, what, what would, if Dan, if I said to you the Sundance Film Festival, what kind of movies are there? What, what would your response be to that? That are there? I would say mainly indie movies, movies that don't get enough attention. Correct. As Ben was joking to me, he goes, these are a bunch of indie movies that we're going to say, this is awesome. This is this year's Whiplash. This is this year's The Big Sick. And then in August, when it opens in 12 theaters, nobody sees it. I'll never hear of it again. The other part of it, if I said to you Sundance films, I'd say depressing. Here's the latest one I just got. New film called Pity. The story of a man who feels happy only when he is unhappy. Addicted to sadness with such need for pity that he's willing to do everything to evoke it from others. This is the life of a man in a world not cruel enough for him. Get fired up. Sundance Film Festival 2018. Me and Ben Lines are going to be there. Cannot wait for that. Uh, thanks, as always, to everybody who listened. Like I said, not only Ben Lines, i got to shout out Carlton Gillespie, who is putting in work. Our talent producer in L.A., he's got us some serious guests. If you want to know how all of a sudden we get these guests, it's because Carlton is putting in work. He got us Willem Dafoe. He got us Richard Jenkins. And now he's got a great guest today, Errol Morris. If you know documentaries, you know he's on the short list of the top five greatest documentarians of all time. His new film is called Wormwood. It's on Netflix. And Dan tells me Esquire called it the best film of 2017. It's in six parts. It's 40 minutes each. I can't wait to talk to Errol Morris. He won an Academy Award for The Fog of War. I love his movie. Um, uh, Mr. Death is a great film. Uh, he's obviously made so many good movies over the years. So we'll talk to Errol Morris about that. Also, Dan and I are going to release our top ten movies of the year and our worst five movies of the year. All that coming up momentarily. Phantom Thread. So every year I'm going to go through one sort of adventure to go find the movie. Of course, last year's silence took my wife and kids to Shake Shack, dumped them off, went and saw the movie. So this year, thankfully, they're in California with her family, enjoying 75 and sunny, so there's no excuses. Christmas Day here in Connecticut, three inches of snow. Get up at 10, shovel the snow, all good. One hour it took me driving. 70-millimeter Phantom Threads only playing in literally two theaters in New York and two theaters in Los Angeles. Two hours, 15 minutes to get there. Eagles are playing that night, 8 o'clock. You know what? I'm going to knock out Phantom Thread at 1. I'm going to watch the post at 4. I'll get home. Like I'll miss the first quarter of the Eagles game. It's a nothing game. It's fine. All good. 70 millimeter. Like I'm so, the last time I saw a movie in 70 millimeter was Hateful Eight, which was in Dallas. 70 millimeter is incredible. And, and Dunkirk, sorry. Dan and I saw a Dunkirk, of course, 70 millimeter. If you see a movie in 70 millimeter, like the resolution is unbelievable. So I'm hyped up. I'm fired up at my Buick Enclave driving down to New York on Christmas Day. I get there at 112. I'm like, mm, great. We're going to slice a pizza before the movie. Walk in there. Never seen a theater more packed. I, I understand everyone goes to the movies on Christmas Day, but. I've never seen it more packed. So I go up there, I'm going to get my ticket. One o'clock show, so one thirty show, 70 millimeter, sold out. That's no big deal. I'll go watch the post instead. Uh, post is sold out as well. Okay. All the money in the world. I got to go see Christopher Plummer, Canadian, sold out. Okay. What isn't sold out? Oh, Pitch Perfect 3 is available. Pass on that. So, okay. Of course. 430 show, Phantom Third. I got nothing to do, guys. I'm going to do whatever I want. 430 sold out. I go, are you kidding? Am I really going to wait until the 8 o'clock showing of Phantom Thread? It's 1.15 right now. I'm like, no, let's go to the other movie theater. So I go back to the car, parked in New York City for 20 minutes. 
I go, hey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I got to get my car. I got to drive somewhere else. I, I like to walk, of course, but it was like a 10 minute drive in New York, like too long to walk. It's freezing outside. $33 in parking. I go, hang it, man, listen, it's Christmas. I screwed up the movie times. I'm a moron. I could have just bought it online like everybody would have. Like if you're really excited for this movie, if it's the one movie you're waiting for all year to go see, Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel Day-Lewis's final movie, why don't you buy the ticket online? Nah, we'll just drive there, buy it. I like to like to buy it. I like to be the guy in line. I like to feel the hard ticket. Stupidity. I go to the other theater, which is where I saw Silence. I, go, I remember this theater. Yeah, this is downtown. This is like 4th and uh, 32nd, I want to say. 1.30 sold out, 4.30 sold out. I go, that's it. And then there's a 7 o'clock showing. I go, I'm not going to drive back again. Let's just take the 7 o'clock showing and away we go. I, the only thing open, by the way, I don't know if everybody's walked in New York City on Christmas Day. Dwayne Reed is open. And then a few restaurants in Times Square. I want to go watch basketball. I'm like, oh, I'll watch the rest of the Knicks game. And then, of course, the Cavs Warriors. Anyways, it was a fun five hours of walking by myself. Eventually, I go see Phantom Thread, which, of course, I'm so hyped to go see. And this is always a quandary I'm in. I see Gene Wojciechowski in Atlanta. And you know, people always ask you, what's a good movie to see? And I always have to ask, well, what are you into? Like, what is Rick Passmore into? And then I answer the question. Don't ask me what I'm into, because I don't know if our tastes align. So he's asking me, well, what's good? Well, I like The Post. I said, of course you will, Gene. You're a journalist, huge liberal, the reporters are heroes, Spielberg, Hanks. Are you kidding? Like, go, go see it tomorrow. You're going to think it's the greatest movie of all time. Trump people are going to despise this movie. Fake news, media. Okay, enough of that crap. So Phantom Thread. If you're Randall Thorne, if you're Claire Atkins, if you're Julie Grossman, if you're Phil Novak, if you're Adnan Burke, if you like 1950s Hitchcock, this is the movie for you. If you're a cinephile lover, if you love exquisite costume design, if you like Daniel Day-Lewis channeling his inner beast, if you love Paul Thomas Anderson making a welcome return to form after his previous film, which was awful, which will not be spoken of, Inherent Vice, which as I called it should have been called Incoherent Mess. What a terrible movie that was. Joaquin Phoenix. I don't know what he's thinking. But he's back. And background to it, P.T. Anderson said the story for it was this. He was really sick, and he liked the fact his wife was taking care of him. He's got four kids. And he goes, you know, when you're really sick, you just watch a lot of movies. And he goes, he's locked in on TCM. And I kept watching Rebecca, which is a classic Hitchcock film, and Vertigo, which is my favorite Hitchcock film. And he said, you're not supposed to say this out loud. You're not supposed to say as a filmmaker, I want to channel Hitchcock. I'm going to make a movie that apes Hitchcock, that is an homage to Hitchcock. Because you can't even say that. I say that. Go, shh, shh, shh. It's like me saying as a sportscaster, I want to be like Oberman or Costner. No, you can't. You're, you'll never be that. So don't even try. But P.D. Anderson said, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And when he wrote the script, he goes, I know I wanted to work with Daniel again. And so him and DDL are talking. They went through the script together, had a lot of input. And, and by the way, 10th anniversary of There Will Be Blood was just the other day. So I'm watching Phantom Thread. And listen, it's deliberate. It's going to take its time. The story is Reynolds Woodcock. He's this fashion designer in 1950s England. And you get to see a lot of Day-Lewis in this character. He's obsessive with his work. All he cares about is his work. Once his work ends, he gets very sad. He gets very depressed. You wonder, how much of this is Daniel Day-Lewis in real life? How much of this is that just the character? He meets this, meets this young waitress named Vicky Kreps. They have a nice little flirtation. Eventually, he wants to make a dress for her. Very erotic scene. Again, you know how much I love Age of Innocence. There's a scene where he's seducing her by taking her measurements and talking about making a nice dress for her. And I started to think, like, my buddy Jesse Palmer is really into clothing. So now I start to look at the clothes now. None of the clothes the friends of mine are wearing right now. But I'm talking, like, exquisite suits. Like, when Jesse's wearing 
these like tight European cut. I'm like, oh, okay, now I understand. If you're into fashion, you go, okay, look at the, look at the way it drapes off the shoulders. Look at the, the inseam here. Look at, and that's what Deleuze is doing with her. And it's a strangely erotic scene because I'm like, this guy's supposed to be the greatest fashion designer in the world. Imagine you're this relatively homely looking woman working in a restaurant. She's this Luxembourgian actress and this guy's taking interest in you. And away we go. And then again, the vertigo themes, it's obsessiveness, it's madness. I will give away no further parts of the story except to say nobody sees the third act coming. And at the end of the movie, I have <laughs> sold out theater, of course, because everybody went to the 7.30. The one guy next to me turns to me and goes, man, that's some kind of movie. Huh? I'm like, yeah. The other girl behind me goes, that was one of the most boring movies I've ever seen. <laughs> so I can only imagine. And this is an audience that is obviously primed for this type of work on Christmas Day opening night. Mass audiences, I can't imagine they're going to be hyped up to go see Phantom Thread. But I liked it a lot. It's a little long. It takes its time getting to where it's going to go. But wicked sense of humor. You hear costume drama, gothic romance, Hitchcock. I didn't realize how funny it would be. There's a scene with Daniel Day-Lewis and Vicky Kreps arguing about asparagus. That's one of the funniest scenes that I saw in any movie. And the most of the crowd was laughing at how absurd it was. But a welcome return to form uh, for Paul Thomas Anderson. And if it is indeed Daniel Day-Lewis's final film, I think it's a fitting tribute to a wonderful actor. It's an idiosyncratic film. As I said, it's not necessarily due to all mass audiences. But I thought it was done with exquisite care. And I heard someone the other day say, it's a film about a master craftsman made by a master craftsman starring a master craftsman. That's probably a good way to put it. Tom Hanks last night, the National Board of Review Awards, made a joke about Paul Thomas Anderson. He goes, you know, he makes these movies. You can't describe them in less than 20 minutes. Like he goes, try describing. There will be blood to somebody. Ah, it's about oil. It's about greed. It's about this crazy guy. He's angry. He's got this kid. Like, what, what, how do you describe these movies? And Phantom Thread is another one of those movies. So that's what I recommend. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. As I said, it, it is a little long, a little drawn out, but I did enjoy the approach. And I got to mention the music. Johnny Greenwood's score is incredible. I've been listening to it all the time. Of course, he's the Radiohead guitarist, and he did the There Will Be Blood score. Him and P.T. Anderson are in cahoots. It is one of the most evocative scores and melodic scores I've heard in a long time. Heavy use of the piano, very orchestral. Our buddy Alexander Duplat for The Shape of Water just won the best original score at the Golden Globes, which I love that soundtrack. They were so nice. They sent me Fox Searchlight, the CD, which I've been wearing out in my car, the aforementioned Buick Enclave. But I'm telling you, I hope the Phantom Thread score gets a lot of recognition because it's beautiful as well. All right, The Post, Dan Stanzik's movie. We've got a bunch of hard-charging reporters. It's the 1970s trying to uncover the truth on Nixon and the papers. So originally the title was The Papers because the papers are the confidential documents that it's trying to reveal. And it is a respectable production. It's a well-made production. It, it's a zippier than I thought. I was worried like Darkest Hour, it would be so dialogue-heavy. Bunch of journalists, you know, kind of like Spotlight with their bad coffee and bad clothes and bad hair, and away we go. But it actually moves at a good pace because Spielberg is, of course, a natural-born entertainer, and he recognizes I've got to have a zippy style to it. So he moves the camera, I think, more than he normally does for Spielberg, and he's got entertaining performances. Hanks, in some ways, is a little bit miscast. He's tough to buy as a cigar chomp and brandy drink and roll up the sleeves, hard-nosed reporter, yet... He's clearly having fun in the role, and he's such a good actor. He he does um, make him into an entertaining character. But if you've seen all the President's Men, Jason Robards, I think, played a better Ben Bradley. And if you really know about Ben Bradley's arc, it's it's tough to picture nice guy Hanks in it. But he is very good in the movie. Meryl Streep, again, is fine. It's not one of her stronger performances. I'll say that. I thought it was more of a supporting performance. And um, she does have a couple of major scenes. She's the publisher of the paper, of the Post in Washington, and she has to decide whether or not to publish these papers. And, of course, Hanks and his renegade journalists. But shout out to Bob Odenkirk, Better Call Saul. He's got a strong role in the movie. And David Cross, 
Yes, Tobias Bluth is in the movie. So immediately I go, oh, how smart is Spielberg? They, they used to do the show Mr. Show. So he's got Odin Kirk, he's got uh, David Cross, and then, of course, he's got Hanks and Streep. So um, you've got this natural evolution of when are they going to publish the papers. It's all about doing the right thing and being a journalistic crusader and what was a really important time in American history. And Robert McNamara played impeccably by Bruce Greenwood. I haven't heard anybody mention him, the Canadian actor. He played JFK in 13 Days, the Kevin Costner movie. He's an excellent Robert McNamara. He's got some really good scenes with Meryl Streep. And you can often imagine right now, you know, in the media, Ben Bradley was friends with JFK. One of the scenes they're mocking Bradley, you're this crusading journalist, and yet you would hang out with Jack and his buddies. So how much of a investigative reporter were you? How hard-nosed were you when you were friends with these people? And you often wonder about sourcing and the media and how objective media is. And, of course, it's so timely with all the comments that the president makes about the media and such. So... The, the question then begets this. How is this movie not running away with all the awards? You've got Hanks, you've got Streep, you've got Spielberg. It's very timely. It's well made. And the reason is it's a little flat. It's not as strong as the other movies. Three billboards outside of Missouri is ferocious. Shape of Water is wildly original and imaginative. Lady Bird hits you in the heart and core of a mother-daughter story. The Post is a very well-respectable, well-made film. The end. <laughs> Three Maple Leafs. I liked it. And if you're a journalist, you're in that vein, of course, you will think it's the greatest movie. Gene Wojciechowski right now has already seen it twice. We've got to get to downsizing. So my favorite writer-directors, you know, I talk so much about Marty, but if you said, like, contemporary people, Paul Thomas Anderson, and I love Alexander Payne, Sideways, The Descendants, uh, Nebraska, I know Dan likes a lot, uh, Election is really funny. So he's got a new movie coming out, Ben Lyons, a rare misstep by Ben Lyons, told me in November he saw Downsizing in the screening. He goes, oh, you're going to like it? I go, that's like my number three movie I'm most excited about. Phantom Thread, probably Shape of Water, and then Downsizing. Opened December 22nd. Of course, I went opening night. It is a jaw-dropping atrocity. I was stunned at how awful this movie is. And for anybody who claims I have any sort of bias, let me again reaffirm, Alexander Payne is one of my favorite writer-directors. I had reached out to one of his contacts in November when we got Wahlberg on, because he's the same guy, who, and I said, listen, if we can get Alexander Payne on the pod, I love him, and I hope we can still get him, but his movie's terrible. I don't know what he was thinking. Here's the story. It's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids for 2017. Man and a woman, due to overpopulation, decide to shrink themselves to the size of five inches. So the story has this absurdist, satirical tone, maybe a little Orwellian, and it's Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig are the couple. They don't have much money, and the reason why everyone is shrinking themselves is because of overpopulation, and it's a lot cheaper. So Jason Sudeikis is his former neighbor and buddy. He's now shrunk himself down to five inches size. He's telling Damon, you got to do this. we got our own world here. Uh, they just opened uh, the local Walgreens. we got a bowling alley. we got movie theaters. Like, everything's cheap. Because you eat one raisin, you're done, you're full. Like, it's amazing. So it's got this kind of whimsical tone. It's kind of silly and fun. And, <laughs> spoiler alert, Damon goes through the process. they got to shave yourself completely. And they go through the medical process. And he gets a phone call from his wife, Kristen Wiig. And she's like, I couldn't go through it. He's like, what? And she's like, I'm sorry, I'm at the airport. I just, I couldn't do it. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you got to come back here to the clinic, get it through it. She's like, I can't. I was only doing it for you. I can't do it. And she goes, you don't understand the stress. Stop yelling at me. He goes, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just telling you. I did it. You got to come back and do the surgery. And she goes, well, I don't understand why you're yelling at me. You understand the stress I'm under. He goes, you don't understand what I'm facing. He goes, what you're facing? I'm five inches tall. <laughs> it's the only genuinely funny laugh in the movie. After that, it's a wild tonal shift. Damon then becomes this widower trying to meet another woman. Hong Chow shows up in the movie. I like seeing Asian-American actresses rewarded. She's nominated for a SAG Award. She was nominated for a Golden Globe Award, uh, which is obviously a very underrepresented group in Hollywood, so that's good to see. But I thought her performance was fine. But the movie gets awfully serious, and then it starts making some really just self-serving 
messages about overpopulation and what's happening in the world, and it's not funny, and it's not interesting, and it's not entertaining. And by the end of it, you just can't wait for the thing to end. I can't remember the last time I was like, I, I literally am counting the minutes. You know, I'm not on my phone. I pulled up my phone at one point. I said, all right, let's just go ahead and check some Twitter. Like, this, this movie's brutal. And in fact, uh, Timothy Burke at Deadspin, he had messaged me. He um, he gets all the screeners. So he said, I was told by everybody, hey, whatever you do, just throw out downsizing. Like, it's awful. It's completely not worth your time. One of the all-time worst years by major A-list actor, Matt Damon, The Great Wall, Suburbicon, and Downsizing. Three giant bombs. And don't tell me Great Wall did well overseas. Come on. Like foreign sales were great. Okay, congratulations. So Burbicon, him and Clooney together, brutal. Downsizing, awful. Downsizing, I think, is 50% Rotten Tomatoes, which is very high. The audience response is like 25%. Absolutely terrible. Avoid it. I'll give it one Maple Leaf. If I had any guts, I'd give it no Maple Leaf, but I'll just give it one Maple Leaf to be nice. They somehow got it made. Congratulations. And lastly, before we get to Errol Morris, all the money in the world, which Dan Stanzik will be watching shortly. How about the backstory to this? So they make the movie. Kevin Spacey's playing J. Paul Getty. Uh, Spacey's 58 years old. They had to make him look older for the movie. Of course, everything comes out about Spacey. We all know that. Ridley Scott has a decision. Do we shelve the movie? Like Louis C.K.'s movie, no one's ever going to see now. Although my cousin tells me it's pretty good. He watched it online. Do we shelve the movie because no one's going to see it at Spacey? No one's going to watch it. Or do we reshoot it? He meets Christopher Plummer in New York City. says, you got two weeks to prepare. And then we're going to take nine days to shoot. It's going to cost $10 million. We took a vote. Wahlberg and Williams said they're in. They're going to fly back to Italy, reshoot your scenes. Christopher Plummer's 88 years old. Like, do you want to do this? He's like, I'm in. Plummer did not watch any of the scenes that Spacey was in, did not want to mimic or ape his performance. So he goes in there. He said it was like boot camp. It's like going to theater. You're on the stage. Just learn the lines and go. And all the many in the world is the uh, faithfully told true story of his terrible kidnapping of J. Paul Getty's grandson. And the best part of the movie is Christopher Plummer. Every time Plummer's on screen, you couldn't even imagine Spacey in the role. He's 58, then to make him look older. Plummer's 88, then to make him look younger. Because <laughs> they're like, they've got to do these flashback sequences and such. But he is absolutely chilling. He plays this villainous grandfather who all he cares about. I kept thinking of uh, the expression, money is the root of all evil. Because this guy is the personification of it. He is filled with avarice. Uh, he is so greedy and mean-spirited and cruel, and it's a brilliant performance by Christopher Plummer. Right now on Gold Derby, he's running number six out of the five nominees. I think he gets in there because I think the backstory of this is amazing, and I'm telling you, he's the best part of the movie. Having said that, whenever Plummer's not in the movie, it loses a bit of steam. We love Mark Wahlberg, two-time uh, cinephile guest, miscast in the movie. I think when Wahlberg, the fighter, the departed, I think he's a great actor when he's in the right role. But in a movie like this, it was just tough to buy him in his character. I don't think that's any fault of his own. Sometimes that happens. Michelle Williams is very good as the mother who's trying to uh, look after her grandson who's been kidnapped. Uh, beautifully shot in Italy. Ridley Scott, by the way, is 81 years old, 80 years old. So two octogenarians making a movie in all the money in the world, Ridley Scott and Christopher Plummer. Uh, but I thought it was a solid film. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Again, kidnapping thriller, suspenseful, I did get a little sick of the scenes of Wahlberg just telling Michelle Williams, here's the strategy. But again, Plummer's terrific, and it's a good movie, and all the money in the world is what you should go see. Next time, uh, we'll talk about Hostiles and Call Me By Your Name. But now it's time for our man, Errol Morris.
A fresh new year has begun, and if you're setting new goals for your business, it's extremely difficult to reach them without the right people on your team. And ZipRecruiter has transformed how you go about finding them. In need of great talent for your business but short on time, you don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invite them to apply. They even review every application to identify the top candidates so you never miss a great match. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. That's C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. He is on the short list of the greatest documentarians of all time. Errol Morris, the Academy Award-winning filmmaker, has a new film currently on Netflix. It's called Wormwood. Esquire calls it the best film of 2017, and it's a real pleasure to have him on Cinephile today. Errol, thanks for the time, sir. Thank you. So I saw the first part. It's six parts, about 40 minutes apiece, and I saw the first part last night, and it's got... Uh, in many ways, your trademark style, and it's got a chilling tone to it. I love that scene where Peter Sarsgaard uh, has the drugs uh, and, and is kind of under the um, under the influence there. In terms of how you approach this material, what what is of course different is that it is a documentary, but you're showing recreations and you're using you know actual actors and a whole cast and such. What led you to uh, employ that style? Well, I've always had a little bit of a problem with that term recreation because I'm not sure what I'm recreating. Someone has to tell me one of these days. <laughs> I guess. I guess. I guess the term means just um, refilmings. I suppose what history was. I don't know. Does that make any more sense? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> All right. Well, go ahead. Tell me about your style, then, please. I've had this dream of mixing genres. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the wearing blender approach to filmmaking, but. There's a little bit of everything in Wormwood. There's drama, uh, there are interviews, there's archival material, there are reenactments of one kind or another. There's a little bit of Hamlet. There's a little bit of everything. And what kind of amazes me, and I'm the guy who made the damn thing, <laughs> is that it works. Yeah, like you said, you're melding together all these different pieces. And just for those who are unfamiliar with it, Errol, can you just explain what the plot is? Because I think it is a fascinating story that you're telling. Well, the plot is a true story. It goes back to the beginnings of the Cold War, 1953. An Army research scientist, Frank Olson, plunges out of a window 13 stories above 7th Avenue. This is the Statler Hotel overlooking the old Pennsylvania station. And what exactly happened? Did he commit suicide? Did he did he jump under some kind of duress? Or, let's bring an or in here, mm-hmm. was he murdered? And it's the 
amazing story because it's not just a story about an investigation. It's a story about the government's attempts to prevent it from being investigated or ever solved. Wormwood is currently available on Netflix. I encourage everyone to check it out. We're talking with Errol Morris right now in Cinephile. Errol, as I mentioned, it's a landmark career. Uh, seriously, uh, the short list of great documentarians of all time. People mention the Maisels, Frederick Weissman, Michael Moore, Ken Burns, and yourself. It's indisputable you're one of the top five documentarians of all time. I know you're 69 and still churning out great work, but how often do you ever contemplate your legacy and your contribution towards nonfiction films? I make movies for one reason, so I can make more movies. So do I plan to continue working? You betcha. I'm going to make another one. I'm glad that people like Wormwood, that it's a success. It's probably being seen by more people than have ever seen a film by me in the past. I have Netflix to thank for that. But, you know, I want to go on and make something else. It won an Academy Award for The Fog of War, uh, which is such an impactful film. And again, it, it, people often talk again about your style and the fact you invented that machine called the Interatron. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but... You did it perfectly. Excellent. Well, it's one for me. It allows you and the subject to talk to each other through the camera lens itself. Can you explain that device and why that was so revolutionary, please? Uh, I had been fascinated by eye contact. You know, we have a problem filming an interview film an interview, just think about it for a minute, two people sitting across from each other at a table. Um, If I look directly into your eyes, I'm not looking into the camera. Uh, And so the whole role of eye contact isn't preserved. And I found a way to do it using half-silvered mirrors, modified prompters, etc. Look, I've described this to thousands of people, literally. No one ever gets it until they see it. You know, I'll go through some long song and dance. Then they'll pop up in the studio where I've set up this device, and they say, oh, oh, now I get it. I see. <laughs> Um, of all the great movies you've made, I wish I can't wait to watch this again, Errol, because it's been too long since I seen it. You haven't it. watched it no, yet. No, no, no. Twenty years ago, fast, cheap, and out of control. Oh, sorry. Yes. Now, no, see, no. I'm. Yeah. Now I have to apologize. No, that, that's okay. You can you can bash me wherever you like, but that is uh, an incredible documentary. Dave Hoover, a lion tamer. George Bendanka, a gardener. Ray Mendez, a hairless mole rat expert, and Rodney Brooks, a robotics designer. And you used that special camera, the Interatron, to talk about their obsession to the audiences. I've never forgotten that movie, Errol. Like I said, I, I need to watch it again. But I guess. Oh, well, the, thank you so much. No, you know, the reason I loved it so much, because I, I have a bit of an obsessive personality, and I love movies about obsessive people. And that movie I thought was perfect because it shows people you would think are eccentric or people would categorize them as strange or weird. But I think that they're fascinating people because they love what they do and what can be more uh, important than that. They're each and every one of them incredibly fascinating and, yes, obsessive characters. And I have one of my great obsessives in Wormwood. Um, It's not every son. Maybe it's Hamlet-like. Of course it's Hamlet-like that spends their entire life pursuing uh, their father's killers. 
It's a great story about obsession and commitment and the search for truth. Last one for you, Errol, I promise, because I, I like it's, it's. No, 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 I'm enjoying this. Thank you. <laughs> um, Mr. Death. Yeah, one of my favorites. It, it is. Um, you know what, what's great about There's a lot that's great about What I really love about it is there's a real dark humor to it. The way you shoot it and the cigarettes and the kind of the creepy smiles he gives. For those that don't know, it's about a man who was a, an authority on capital punishment, but was later discredited when he got involved on the, the wrong side of a court case. But uh, tell me whatever you want about Mr. Death. I think that's a terrific film. Well, people ask me, well, where do you come up with these crackpot stories? And guess what? Usually the New York Times. Inside of the New York Times is a tabloid paper. I'm convinced of it, or there used to be. So I'm reading the New York Times, page one, and there's a story about, can capital punishment be humane? That's the the tagline. It's a guy who designs capital punishment machines, lethal injection systems, electric chair systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm reading this thing, and I think, do I want to do this? Uh, I don't know. Buried deep in the paper, nearly at the end of the article, some page whatever, it mentions just casually in passing, oh, he happens to be a Holocaust denier. I think, what? He's a Holocaust denier and a designer of capital punishment machines, I'm in. <laughs> I'll do it. Call on me, sir. Thank you. And is one of my very favorite crazy characters. What would I do without Fred Lucher? Oh, it, it's such a good movie. I, I don't think we're doing it enough justice, but I love the way that you, you uh, mentioned your appeal to it because it's a wonderful story. And you've made an incredible career, sir, of making wonderful stories of people that I think are too often on the outside margins of society. Wormwood is on Netflix. Esquire calls it the best film of 2017. It's in That was six- nice, wasn't it? Yeah, how we go. I was going to say, do you pay attention to rave reviews like that? Yes, I do. <laughs> well, we really appreciate the time, Errol, and all the best with this project and keep making terrific films. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Uh, my friend Alpha was asking, hey, when are you going to do your top 10, bottom five? So since he asked, let's do it. Dan Stanzik is going to go first, and this is what I preface everything with. Dan knows he's the everyman of the podcast. He is supporting those whose film tastes may not jive with mine. But I'm I'm already wondering, because you're not nearly as prolific as I am. Like, I'm worried that you haven't seen The Shape of Water. You haven't seen Coco. But go ahead. Give me your top ten. Do you want to do bottom five or top ten first? I don't watch bad movies, so I don't have a bottom five. (laughs) I just have a top ten. And like you said, I don't watch nearly the amount of movies that you watch. But I think I watch enough. And like you said, I'm the everyman. So you're you're gonna you're gonna hate some of these, but that's fine. Let's do it. First of all, the movies that are not making the cut, I'm gonna tell you right now, they didn't make the cut. I saw them and they're not in my top ten. Atomic Blonde, <laughs> which I had prepared to review in this podcast when Adnan came down with strep throat. Charlie Theron, great action scenes, but it is not in the top ten. Get Out, which is on everybody's oh. top ten list, is not on mine. I It is not my life experience. It is funny. I hate horror movies. Horror comedy didn't really do it for me. Oh. I'm a white kid from suburbia. I, I don't want to apologize for it. 
I understand why people love the movie. Sure. Maybe I just saw it too late and expectations were too high and just it didn't live up to it for me. You're right about expectations because right now if someone goes 98% Rotten yeah. Tomatoes, made $254 million, go, oh my God. Life changing. Everyone's like, oh, it's, yeah. it's transcendent. For me, just maybe I thought too much of it. Also not making the cut. Molly's Game. Whoa! I thought Sorkin. Which is right up my alley, yeah. Aaron Sorkin. It is too long. It is meandering. There is a horrendous ice skating scene that I don't even want to talk about because it's so bad. Kevin Costner plays the yeah. father. I, I love Costner's Jessica Chastain. I thought it was going to be very good. It's not. I wouldn't watch it. You'd give it like two maple leaves. Two. Yeah. I saw you gave it three, three. and someone else said it was awesome on Twitter. I almost yeah. responded and said, I would give it two. This is nonsense. It's nice. garbage. I like it. Still haven't seen the post, which you mentioned. Right. I think that would probably, that's kind of right up my alley. So we'll see. All right. Number 10. You're going to, you're going to hate this one, but number 10, I'm the everyman. Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh stars in and directs this remake of the classic murder mystery novel by Agatha Christie. An American industrialist with a shady past, played by Johnny Depp, is found dead on a train, and it's up to the most famous detective in the world, who happens to be on the train, to figure out who did it. It's a whodunit with shades of clue that keeps you on your toes until the end. The star-studded cast, Depp, Penelope Cruz, Judy Dench, the dame, Michelle Pfeiffer, Josh Gad, Willem Dafoe, etc., fails to provide a noteworthy performance, but the reveal of the culprit is as clever as it gets. Again, Adnan watches movies for cinematography and costume design. I watch movies for plot and feeling. I love the plot. Where did Randy, I read we, the we book got, when I was a teenager. Back in the open now. That's fine. <laughs> uh, moving on, number nine, Baby Driver. Can I just ask, was Willem Dafoe good in the movie? I love Willem Dafoe. He was okay. okay yeah, he, he was all right. I would watch it just for Willem Dafoe. Uh, Josh Gad, pro- well, Michelle Pfeiffer gives the strongest performance, but it's, again, not noteworthy, as I mentioned. Fair enough. Number nine, Baby Driver. Nice. A fun, upbeat, melodic heist film with, a st- with stirring performances by John Hamm, Jamie Foxx, and Ansel Elgort. Who plays the titular character, the driver of a getaway car. That's very good. Uh, As long as you're willing to suspend disbelief just a little bit, you'll walk away thoroughly entertained. Worth your time. Fun, light, you know, not not a heavy plot. Just fun. A lot of music. Spacey is in it, by the way. I should mention Kevin Spacey is in the film. He plays a villainous boss of sorts. Number eight. Flying through these. I wrote a lot. Wind River. Oh, nice. Jeremy Renner, friend of the pod, stars in this layered drama about the murder of a Native American girl on a reservation. Renner plays this wildlife tracker who found the dead body, and he helps a young FBI agent investigate the murder. Similar to Hell or High Water, there is atmosphere for days. This time, however, in sub-zero temperature Wyoming, where information about characters is revealed with minimal dialogue. This manufactured aura makes sense because the director, Taylor Sheridan, was the screenwriter for Hell or High Water. Nice. Uh, I'm glad you saw it. Yeah. No, it was good. Number seven, The Big Sick. Yes. A Pakistani stand-up comedian living in Chicago falls in love with a white woman, but he can't tell his family about her because they still believe in arranged marriages. Eventually, things boil over. They break up. Shortly thereafter, his now ex-girlfriend comes down with a mysterious illness. One of her friends calls him to go to the hospital. So he goes, she falls into a coma, he has to call her parents, he eventually meets the parents, they're played by Holly Hunter and Ray Romano, and they wait for updates from a team of doctors. It's a smart, sweet, and funny film that is an autobiographical account of the main character, Kumal Nanjani, did I get that right? Nailed it. Who's best known for his role in HBO's Silicon Valley. Number six, another Adnan favorite, 
Obit. Yes, all right. An HBO documentary about the New York Times obituary section. It may sound morbid and macabre, but this film demonstrates how an obit is really a celebration of life. For example, an obituary that's 800 words may only include one or two sentences about the death. In fact, the notion of word count I found to be interesting. The people who work in this section get to assign a word count to someone's life. Obviously, the more impactful the person, the more words that are allotted. In the grand scheme, we all want to live and have an impact on the world, and these people get to decide who did. So they mention uh, how family members of people that died call in all the time and try to sell them on, like, my, my family member deserved an obituary in the New York Times, but the filtering process isn't as easy as you think. So, of course, famous actors and actresses are obviously going to get an obit in the New York Times, but the documentary, they spend a good deal of time on people you wouldn't know by name, but what they did is impactful. Like the guy who served as JFK's television advisor and the guy who flew the plane that dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. You don't know their names, but you know their impact on society. The film, not for everyone, but as someone who enjoys history and learning facts, right up my alley. Number five. Three billboards outside yes. Ebbing, Missouri. Five, five, right. In her best role since Fargo, Frances McDormand plays a mother who hasn't heard from the local police department in seven months after her teenage daughter was raped and murdered. So she rents three billboards, there's your title, on a road that no one uses. The billboards highlight the lack of follow-through by the local police and call out the police chief played by Woody Harrelson by name. If that's a spoiler, I don't care. <laughs> Go see the movie. Whatever. <laughs> Uh, Harrelson's character is a good man who is actually dying of cancer and everyone in the town loves him, especially a fellow police officer played by the dynamic Sam Rockwell. So they all turn on McDormand, who in turn digs her heels in. The film has its flaws, and I've mentioned a few of them to you, a few quibbles, um, but a sense of empathy for all of the characters, which I believe you said, it's weird how they do it. You end up understanding how everyone feels and everyone's kind of on opposite sides, but you understand where they're all coming from. And that kind of comes through in the end and makes it worth your time. Nice. Moving along to number five as I turn the page. Number four. Number four. I'm sorry. Number four, top ten films of 2017. Logan. Yes. All right. I was hesitant to see this film because I am not an ardent supporter of the superhero genre. I enjoyed the Nolan Batman trilogy, the Avengers, and two of the Iron Man films, but that's about it. Apologies to your brother, who I know if, his, if this was his top time, it'd be all comic book movies. Hey, by the way, he was very pleased that you mentioned that I omitted Spider-Man and a Franco's. That he, he was Good. all over that. Yeah. Good. He was impressed that you knew off the top. That I'm always thinking of him. Uh, but this film is unlike any superhero film that you have ever seen. Nice. It stars Hugh Jackman as a worn-down, aging Wolverine who is caring for an old, dying Professor X. And I should point out that you do not need to know anything about the X-Men to enjoy this film, but a basic understanding, which is all I had, really goes a long way. The premise is as follows. The Mexican government has created a handful of mutant children in a lab, but when they discover an even more effective way to harness mutant powers, they try to, for lack of a better term, get rid of the children. Jackman's character is forced into transporting a young girl who shares his mutant deviation to a safe place. There is a lot of blood, gore, and action in the film, but there's also a lot of heart, compassion, and tenderness. Yeah. Number three. Yeah. The Shape of Water. Yeah, all right. I love this list. Way back when, I used to work with Colin Cowherd here at ESPN, and one of his go-to phrases was, say it out loud. Well, if I applied that tactic to this film, I would say... A mute woman falls in love with a fish man. (laughs) 
That's probably not the best sell for this unique love story written and directed by our guy, GDT, yes. Guillermo del Toro. But in addition to this love story, this film includes a secret government facility, Cold War drama, a sex scene with Michael Shannon, yes. who plays an intense villain, and wonderful supporting performances by Octavia Spencer and Richard Jenkins, yes, friend of the podcast. Jenkins, yes. I was a communication major in college, and when they told me that over 90% of communication is nonverbal, I was in staunch disbelief. But a performance like the one given by Sally Hawkins, who plays the mute woman, is truly a testament to that fact. Number two. Yeah. Dunkirk. Yes, all right. A frenetic, almost dizzying World War II drama with shades of Mad Max Fury Road. Director Christopher Nolan crafts a visual spectacle that is loaded with suspense a handful of truly jarring moments that make you grip your seat, and stellar performances from the likes of Tom Hardy, Killian Murphy, and Mark Rylance. I'm sure you're going to have plenty more on Dunkirk in your top ten. So I move along to number one, Lady Bird. Wow! Hands down, the best film of 2017 is Lady Bird. Wow! Greta Gerwig wrote and directed a movie that pulls at your heartstrings, makes you laugh, and connects you to your past. Sir Ronan plays a senior at a Catholic high school living in Sacramento in the early 2000s, which really hit home for me as someone who attended a Catholic high school at that time. I mean, the music, the school uniforms, being told to leave room for the Holy Spirit at dances yeah. brought me all back. Nice. Lady Bird goes through just about every stressful situation a high schooler can face, wanting to be popular, doing drugs, getting in trouble, losing her virginity, etc. And she unleashes all of her angst on her mother, played by the wonderful Lori Metcalf, who is working double shifts as a nurse to keep the family afloat after Lady Bird's father loses his job. Throughout all the strife with her mother and the indelible hurdles of adolescence, there is this sense of sweetness that bleeds through it all. I think the film is really connected with audiences because Lady Bird is such a relatable character. Everyone either knew someone just like her when they were in high school, or Lady Bird serves as this amalgamation of two or three people that they knew in high school. Either way, those memories take you back and make you reflect on what you've overcome in your own coming-of-age story. Bravo. I love it. Well written. I'm telling you, we got a lot of similarities here. This is fantastic. By the way, I've got a line out to Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan, so fingers crossed we can get either of those two. Best movie of the year. Look at it. Bam! Dropping the mic on that. I did think, just as the big sick appealed to me, obviously with my Pakistani heritage, being Irish Catholic, you would like Lady Bird, but I did not think it would be that high. All right, I'm going to fly through mine. I can't top that. Passport, by the way, I'm putting you on the clock. You're going to have to do a top five while I'm doing this. you got to think of a couple. Come on. Number 10 is Coco, sweetest uh, kids movie of the year. Got to get at least one of those in there. Pixar does it again. Dia de los Muertos. Love the song Remember Me. Fantastic all around. Number nine, Logan. But it's got to be the Logan Noir version. you got to watch it in black and white. It's unbelievable. Uh, everything that Dan said, it's a superhero movie unlike other superhero movies. It's the unforgiven of superhero movies. Credit to writer-director James Mangold for turning it into unforgiven or like an old Western uh, rather than a superhero movie. Loved all the performances. Loved seeing Patrick Stewart nominated for SAG Award for Best Supporting Actor. No one's mentioned him. I thought he was terrific in the film as well. Number eight is The Big Sick. Obviously, I can relate to the story by Pakistani heritage. I thought Kamel Nanjiani was hilarious. I love the script. I hope it gets a nomination for screenplay. Terrific supporting performances. Holly Hunter, Ray Romano, true to life and very funny. Number seven, maybe Dan didn't see it because I thought he'd like it if you see it, is I, Tanya. 
I love the fact that yeah, I did not see it. I love the fact how daring it is, how bold it is. Friend of the program, Ron Rosillo, actually texted me the other day. He said he loved uh, I, Tanya. He said it was he goes, good call on the Goodfellas homage. Because I had said in my review, Craig Gillespie must have seen Goodfellas like 20 times before he made this movie. But I thought uh, you were going to say friend of the podcast, Margot Robbie, by the way. Yeah, by the way, yeah, Margot Robbie, of course, friend of the podcast. Love her and love the fact she was so great with us. By the way, if you read The Hollywood Reporter, thanks to Kathy Leo Grand, I do. There's a great uh, cover story of Margot Robbie and her beginnings. we got to get her back instead of fog. Some of those stories in there, she grew up single mom, one of four kids. She tells a story about how, like, you know, if you spill milk, it was like, we're not going to drink milk now for like a week. She goes, like, that's the type of poverty we lived in. So now uh, it's just so crazy to her what she's been able to do. But she really wanted to do her own projects. And I, Tanya, was something she believed in. She's 27 years old. She's got her own production company. Like, she's unbelievable. And I, Tanya's great. And shout out to Ben Lyons, who correctly predicted Allison Janney would win the supporting actress in the Hollywood Foreign Press, her first Golden Globe out of six tries. I still don't think she wins the Oscar, but credit to Ben because he nailed that like nobody else did. Number six, I'm cheating a little bit. It's an HBO movie, but what the hell? I don't think I got a theatrical release. Spielberg, a great tribute to the wonderful director. Uh, last year, of course, I had DePaulman in my top ten. This year, I'm saying Spielberg. I want an annual feature and retrospective of some of the best films of some of our greatest filmmakers. Number five is Phantom Thread. I talked an awful lot about the homage to Hitchcock and Paul Thomas Anderson reuniting with Daniel Day-Lewis in a delicious and delectable final send-off. Number four, Lady Bird, everything Dan said. Wonderful dialogue. Love the performances. Uh, and loved how true to life it was. Greta Gerwig has said, and if we get her on Cinephile, she said, I get up and everyone keeps telling me it's autobiographical. She goes, it's not. It is in Sacramento. It's a love letter to Sacramento where I grew up, but I'm not Lady Bird. And as Dan said, it's an amalgamation of characters. It's an original creation. She goes, this is my mom was not like Laurie Metcalf. This is just my own observances. So she goes, I'm getting tired of everybody saying it's my life story. Yes, I'm from Sacramento, but I can do other things. Uh, and it's a wonderful film. And I think now, I think it's going to win Best Picture the more I think about it, because <clears throat> three billboards has staunch supporters, but there are detractors. People are trying to say now, listen, this is a movie in which a racist who engages in police brutality ends up being one of the heroes of the movie. Like, we're not, like Rockwell's character is dancing, so tough to take. I don't know if that's a best picture winner. Shape of Water is just too weird, I think, for mainstream audiences. The scene of the egg timer, I'm like, I, I don't see that being a best picture movie. So the more I think about it, and, and they made this point on Gold Derby, Lady Bird, when you rank all the best picture nominees, no one dislikes Lady Bird. Either you love Lady Bird or you thought it was very good. So Lady Bird's probably going to rank first, second, or third on most people's ballots. So by virtue of that, it's going to win Best Picture. Number three is Dunkirk, as Dan said, the verisimilitude. The fact that Christopher Nolan had the guts to say, I want to start a movie in the third act. No beginning, no middle. I'm just starting with the end. Seamless cross-cutting. Uh, John Skipper, our former president, said to me at the Little League World Series, he thought it was Altman-esque in the way it had all those, you know, different storylines all kind of crisscrossing at the same time. Number two is The Shape of Water. Shout out to our boy Guillermo del Toro. Still trying to get him on the podcast. It's weird. It's wonderful. It's so imaginative and it's so audacious. And of course, the great performances, not only Sally Hawkins, but Octavia Spencer, friend of the podcast, Richard Jenkins, um, and Michael Shannon. And number one is Three Billboards. It's a ferocious film. I love Martin McDonough's script. It takes a lot of chances and it's bold and it's adventurous and it's uh, never been seen before by me. Honorable mentions, Florida Project. Shout out to Willem Dafoe, friend of Cinephile. Obit, which is a wonderful documentary, Baby Dryer for its seamless melding of music and movie, Get Out, which I liked a lot, but I'm with Dan. I didn't think it was top 10, but I did think it was wonderfully satirical, and a high mark, The Disaster Artist. Of course, I'm going to get that in in one of the honorable mentions. Five worst, I got four worst, Split, which I hated, Hangman starring Pacino, Downsizing, which I already shredded, and The Last Face starring Javier Bardem, directed by Sean Penn and starring Charlize Theron. Passmore, tell me why The Shape of Water is the best movie of the year. Well, I don't have a definitive list, but I have it in alphabetic order, and I did love The Shape of Water. Nice. Like, fantastic work by everyone all around. and made me go back and rewatch Pan's Labyrinth, 
last night. Which you've now, thankfully, lent me the criteria. And it's just, it, you just see the parallels, and it's tremendous. My top 10 of the year in alphabetical order, since I didn't have time to really list them and really think about it. Baby Driver. Nice. Blade Runner 2049. And no mention of Blade Runner on our list. It was very good. Go ahead. The Disaster Artist. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> Get out. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Very oh, underrated. No, no, I didn't. In the no. sense of Kurt Russell killing it. Oh. But I, again, this would be like a 10. This would be like a 10. <laughs> I like anything. Kurt Russell, but, but I thought it was a big drop off from the first one. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, Tanya. Ice. Well, Lady Bird. Yes. Logan. Yes. The Shape of Water. And three billboards. Oh, look at that. Look at just, uh, just a few cinephiles here agreeing on a lot of the best pictures of the year. Also, shout out to TV movie. i got to mention Wizard of Lies, of course, the great Robert De Niro and his wonderful performance as well. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, the only one that's a little glaring. But I'm glad you mentioned Blade Runner because I see it on some lists. You know, it's one of the bigger flops of the year. I think the budget was $185 million. Of course, it didn't come close to that. But maybe it's one of those movies, years from, just like the original Blade Runner. Maybe years from people will go, you know what? This is a really wonderful movie. It very much parallels that original storyline where it comes to, like, it was a bomb when it came out. But right. maybe down the line, people will start to appreciate it more. We'll see. Those are the best films, according to our cinephiles, Rick Passmore, Dan Stanzik, and me. A Scorsese story. It is tough to top Errol Morris or Dan Stanzik's top ten, but we'll try to do so with the Scorsese story. Um, he was once asked about his most personal films and his favorite films, and you would think Marty would say Main Streets or Goodfellas or something along those lines, but he actually said Italian American, which is a documentary made in 1974. Vince Massey is one of the wonderful researchers we have here at ESPN. I was talking to him recently, and he goes, you know what my favorite Scorsese movie is? It's Italian American. Have you seen it? I said, of course I've seen it. I've got it on VHS. Um, and Vince is Italian, so he loves the fact that the story, it's literally just Marty sitting down with his mother and father and finding about their relationship. And before the interview even starts, Catherine, his mom, of course you've seen and Goodfellas and other cameos. Says, why are you sitting over there? She asked Charlie. I'm sitting over here. Charlie responds, because this is where I want to sit. Catherine turns the camera. This man, after 42 years of marriage, and he sits over there. And right away, you could tell that this is not going to be a straightforward immigrant story um, or a historical document. It's about a 42-year marriage, and it's done by their son, who is this incredible filmmaker who wants to focus on his parents. And they're passive-aggressive, and they're arguing. And Scorsese once was quoted as saying, it's the best thing I've ever done. It was then that I realized that just one image of one person can tell a story, a world. They were better than actors, but they weren't actors. Uh, Catherine is the star of the film. She's quick-witted. She's funny. She's got – clearly, when you watch it, you go, okay, well, Marty clearly looks after his mom. And you can tell why she was in Goodfellas and Casino. And by the way, with 13 acting credits, both of his parents have since passed on. She's always talking with her hands. His dad is much quieter. Uh, at first, he's kind of making fun of his wife a few times. But um, you get the, the sense of the relationship between Marty and his dad as well. And the fact that at times they may have been estranged and that maybe he was closer to his mom than his dad. But at, at both times, uh, he's enjoying the anecdotes to hear what they're talking about. For anybody who wonders, by the way, why Marty talks so fast, you quickly get it by <laughs> listening to how fast his mom speaks. And the movie ends, Catherine asked if she could put all her furniture back the way it was, still telling stories as she does it. Are you still shooting this thing, she asked in laughter? I'll murder you. You'll never get out of this house alive. Marty leaves the footage in just to show the way that families can talk to each other and have a little bit of fun with each other. But if you really love Marty like I do, or maybe you're of Italian descent, you'll enjoy Italian American. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. As always, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, reviews on iTunes. Next time we're going to have reviews of Call Me By Your Name and Hostiles. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.